When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, a pleasure to be with you. Good morning. Hey, Reedy. Good morning. Hello. Now, Chris, the whole world is focusing on this Oscar Pistorius trial. And this week we've heard from witnesses who lived in the neighboring complex testify about the sounds they heard from Pistorius's home that night. And obviously they're being challenged by the defense advocate, uh, challenging them whether they really heard what they think they heard. How do you remember sound and so on? Let, let's just start with a simple question. I mean, how does sound travel? Yeah, it has gone absolutely mad, this. Um, it's dominating mm. the conversations that are happening all over the place, whether you talk to anybody in any country. And here in Britain, it's absolutely huge. Um, in terms of how sound travels, well, sound is a compression wave. And what we mean by that is that when I'm speaking, for example, I'm making little puffs of air come out of my mouth, which are pushing against the air molecules around my head. And if you can imagine all of those air molecules connected together by little elastic bands, if you stretch one and then let it go, it will ping back and bash into the next one, which will then bash into the next one and bash into the next one, almost like a domino effect. And when the sound waves propagate or move, what they're doing is pushing into one set of molecules, which then push into the next set and push into the next set. And this wave then propagates along. Another way you can think about it, if you've ever seen those slinky springs that children like to play with, which uh, are the ones which you can take one end of them and put them on the step below, then it'll unfurl onto the below step and then flip over and go all the way down the stairs. If you stretch one of those out and then squeeze a few of the coils of spring together and let it go, you'll see a wave go all the way to the end of the spring and then come back again and keep oscillating backwards and forwards. That's effectively how sound travels through a medium, whether it's a, a fluid medium like the air or a solid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then now, Chris, in terms of how we remember uh, what we've heard, I mean, all of this happened uh, happened last year, and we had a very interesting caller, Kenneth, saying that, you know, the, the, a distinction between what you remember visually, what you saw, versus what you heard. How does that work? Well, this is the difficulty, because it's very easy, it turns out, to convince people that they have heard, seen, tasted, swallowed, eaten, digested things that Mm -hmm. they may not have done. And so you have to be really careful when uh, exposing people to information because they can then convince themselves subsequently that Mm. it was something that really happened to them. And in fact, there was a study that was done in America in just recent years, and they took a whole load of college students who they knew had never had an unpleasant experience with strawberry pink ice cream. But by telling these students that when they were little, 
they had eaten ice cream once and thrown up afterwards. In other words, planting a very negative memory in their mind. When they then quizzed the students later, a high fraction of them swore blind that when they were little, they had a very unpleasant with strawberry pink ice cream and it made them throw up. In other words, they were able to convince individuals who were completely rational, very intelligent, and uh, with all of their mental faculties, that something had happened that hadn't, mm. just by talking about it. And this is one of the flaws of the human brain, which is that we, we really do have a failure of our ability to remember precise details. There are very few people who can do that. The brain has to store enormous amounts of information, and sometimes it gets confused between what really happened and what you think happened. So we, we have to be very careful, and the whole point of a court process is trying to make sure that people actually do distinguish between what they think happened and what, when they've thought over things or ruminated on things subsequently, really was just something that they were thinking about. Mm -hmm. But we know that memory is connections between nerve cells. The brain has got about 100 billion nerve cells in it, and each one of them makes about 1,000 connections to other nerve cells. And the strengths of those connections can be changed. And when you lay down a memory, effectively you're creating connections or you're strengthening connections between one group of nerve cells and you're weakening connections to other groups of nerve cells. And when you send a signal into this network then only certain outputs will emerge in response to a certain trigger. And that will be the memory. And that's how the brain, using massive numbers of these uh, tiny nerve cells, actually encodes information. So when you remember something, you change nerve connections. And when you recall information, you effectively test those nerve connections and generate an output based on the configuration of how those cells are connected together. Right, our lines are open for you. Chris is here to answer your questions on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Michael in Randburg. Hi, good morning, Chris. Good morning, really. How are you doing? Very well. Your comment? Yeah, uh, Chris, um, I'd just like to know if, uh, if a device called the HARP, H-A-A-R-P, actually exists, and how is it used to um, manipulate weather, etc.? Uh, I, I'm not aware of, of this device. Tell me a little bit more about it, please. Well, if you go onto YouTube, um, YouTube will actually show you uh, a few clips of, of what it actually does. Apparently, it's, it was designed by Tesla, um, and it's used to, it's, it's called a hydroacoustic something or other, and this has been used to actually, they, they, they send radio waves or, or, or ions into the air, manipulating like the, the weather fronts and so on and so forth. I, I don't know anything about that specific device, but what I will say is that it's very possible to manipulate weather, and people in China, for definite, are doing this all the time. Not necessarily okay. with devices like this, but also the Russians have done this. And the reason it's possible to manipulate weather, regardless of how you do it, is that the weather occurs because there is moisture in the atmosphere, there's therefore energy in the atmosphere, and there are clouds. And if you want to make it rain or snow, for example, all you need to do is make those clouds drop what's in them or make more clouds form and get so big and bulky that they have to drop the water that's in them. The way you can do that is by using what they call nucleation chemistry. If you fire particles into the atmosphere, which are very, very tiny, but also love water, then you will encourage water molecules, which are in the form of vapour in the atmosphere, to cluster around those particles, and this is called nucleation, and once they cluster around the particles, they form a droplet. And as one droplet forms, it makes it much easier for other water molecules to cling on, and you get instantly a much bigger droplet and then a bigger droplet and eventually the updrafts the upcurrents of air holding these droplets up in the cloud 
are insufficiently strong to hold them up there, so under the influence of gravity they fall to ground. And there are a number of ways of, of doing this. Silver iodide is one chemical that's been used to do this, and I, and I have heard it said that for the Olympics in Beijing, the Chinese manipulated the weather around Beijing in order to try to keep the, the weather ideal for the Olympics and the ceremonies and things like that. So it can be done. Whether or not this device that you're describing can do it, I don't know, but hopefully there's a clever person out there uh-huh. listening who can give us a bit more information. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Henny in Kelvin, hi. Okay, Henny is gone. Let's go to, in fact, the question that Henny wanted to ask, and Chris, is also relevant to us here in South Africa. We, a lot of suburbs have no electricity because, uh, we've just basically run out of supplies. And our, um, electricity suppliers, ESCOM, they're arguing that because of the incessant rain, the coal from which the electricity is generated is too wet to burn. Therefore, we can't, uh, we don't have electricity. A lot of people have rubbished that. Uh, but the last caller whom we lost wanted to ask exactly that, does wet coal burn? Okay, well, well, Ken, I'm sorry you couldn't hang around, but the answer is it's very difficult to burn anything that's really, really wet. And the reason we put fires out with water is that water has a really high specific heat capacity. In other words, you have to put an enormous amount of energy into water to raise its temperature, even by a very small amount. So if you have a fire, what's keeping the fire burning is that there is a chemical reaction which is releasing energy, and that energy is releasing more fuel from whatever is burning and making that into a vapour that can mix with oxygen, react, and keep the fire going. If you dump huge amounts of water onto that fire, then you rob the fire of the energy which is enabling it to turn the fuel into a vapour that can burn, so the fire goes out. With coal, coal is purely a a form of carbon with various tars and other hydrocarbons in it. And in order to make it react, you have to give it some energy to get it hot. And then the various gases and volatile chemicals can begin to react with oxygen being fed in from the air. And the coal burns, releasing more heat, which then enables more adjacent particles to burn. If you've got very, very wet coal, then you will have to massively increase the amount of energy that you supply and therefore the amount of coal that you burn and, and this can make the reaction go quite slowly and if you if you have a stove in your house you'll know very well when you chuck coal on it if the coal is wet a it's really hard to light b the stove throws out hardly any heat because it's spending most of the energy burning the coal just boiling water and turning it into steam and you sit there and shiver so it will reduce the efficiency of a power station if you're trying to burn wet coal because you're using a lot of the energy that you would be turning into electricity just turning water into steam and chucking it up the chimney thank you very much let's go to um norman in highlands north hi morning um when I eat curry, it doesn't matter if it's a mild curry or a hot curry, my nose runs, and I would just like to know why. <laughs> Hello, Norman. I think, I think everybody gets yeah. uh, their nose running, and then sometimes afterwards you get other things running as well, like running to the loo for what's dubbed the triple R the next day, the red raw <laughs> ring, also known as ring sting. Uh, the reason for this, probably, Norman, is because there are various chemicals in curry chiefly capsaicin, which is the spicy ingredient, which can stimulate the sensory nerve fibres supplying your tongue and your mouth and your lips. And that capsaicin binds onto a certain type of nerve cell called a C-fibre. And these fibres convey pain and temperature. 
and the response of your uh, face in response to stimulation of these nerves is to increase secretions because it, the, the face, if you're getting pain or some kind of unpleasant stimulus in the mouth, you increase salivation and this is intended to wash away the unpleasant aroma. But you may also find some of these chemicals are getting into your eyes and a curry will also make you sweat and make your eyes run. And when you're, when you're sweating and your eyes are running, the tears from your eyes are going to go down your lacrimal duct, in, nasal lacrimal duct, into your nose and run out of your nose, making your nose run. So it's not actually snot that's running out, it's probably tear film and secretions from your eyes which have been increased by the chemicals, including the chilli, in the curry which are activating the nervous system around your face because uh, you, you are trying to clear out what your body perceives to be some kind of toxin or poison. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Norman, I think. Uh, let's go to Ruth in Ravonia. Hi. Hi. My question relates to many of the ones this morning about water and chemicals. Uh, you were talking about the silver nitrate particles that they put into the air and it precipitates rain, and that goes into the water table and that goes into the food. Well, in South Africa, we've got hundreds and thousands of pools Especially after rain, it gets algae, and we're advised to use soda ash and alum. Alum is aluminium. And it particul the particulate matter comes to the bottom, and then we're told to vacuum it out of our pools, and it goes into the water table, and that goes into our food. And alum is aluminium, and it causes Alzheimer's, we think, or there are raised levels of aluminium in people with Alzheimer's. Besides, just touching the packets and the powder gives one an irritant effect. Why, why, are, why is this allowed, and is this a, a real problem? Hello, Ruth. Yes, you've, you've touched on a really important area of chemistry. This is called flocculation, and we use aluminium for this because it's really very effective. It, the, the reason is that aluminium is a very small but highly charged ion. When you make aluminium from a metal into ions, in other words, into a form that, that forms salts, like alum, it forms Al, aluminium, three plus ions. And they're very small, but this very intense charge means they're very good at making things cling around them. And this is why the very small particles of algae, which can slip through the sand in most people's swimming pool filters and therefore keep returning to the pool, which is why your pool goes all soupy. Uh, that's why you can use aluminium salts as a very good way to make all of these algae particles cling together into a big stodge that you can vacuum out very easily. Now, most of the time, this aluminium will therefore not be in a form that's going to get into your body in an appreciable amount. Were you to eat large amounts of aluminium, then there is a chance that it would have quite a negative health impact. The, the jury is out on whether aluminium causes Alzheimer's disease mm. or whether it is associated with Alzheimer's disease. The evidence that it might be associated is that when you look in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's disease, you find the build-up of a chemical called beta amyloid. These are accumulations or aggregations of a protein which is naturally made in the brain by nerve cells and made in greater amounts when nerve cells are stressed. And in people who have Alzheimer's disease, it accumulates, making these plaques, and we think these plaques may be toxic to nerve cells. So the plaques build up, they kill the nerve cells, and the loss of nerve cells leads to Alzheimer's. When people have looked inside these plaques, they have found that they contain sometimes aluminium ions. Now what we don't know is whether the aluminium ions initiated the plaque and made it form in the first place or whether the abnormal neuroanatomy and the abnormal the, the pathology there in that part of the brain making that plaque also makes it more likely that if there is some aluminium around anyway 
it'll just stick to it. So we don't know at this stage whether aluminium is causative or associated just with the pathology associated with Alzheimer's disease. There is some evidence that people who were exposed to very high levels of aluminium, and in Britain there was one famous example in the 1980s where a, a water treatment company accidentally dumped tons of aluminium into what should have been a settling tank but turned mm. out to be for drinking water and some people did develop some health problems afterwards including one person who developed some memory problems but again we're not clear if she was going to develop those memory problems anyway so at the moment we don't know but if you're worried the best thing to do don't cook uh, especially very acidy foods in tins or in, in pots and pans that are made of aluminium because you mm. will end up with the aluminium getting into the food so if you're worried try and stick to an iron pot very, very in informative. Thank you very much for asking that question, uh, Ruth, in Ravonia. Let's go to, uh, is it Ndugeng in Linwood? Hi then, Ndugeng. Yes, good morning, really. How are you? Good. Your comment, your question? Right. I would like to ask the doctor, when you're drinking water, does the temperature of water make any difference? Should I drink hot water, cold water, or any temperature of water is right? Does this mean that when you drink hot water, you shed a lot? weight or something. <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of people <laughs> saying they're drinking warm water and they're going to lose weight. Chris, take us out of our misery. Well, Duking, I wouldn't drink boiling water. That's not likely to be a good idea. Mm. You might also struggle to drink frozen water because mm -hmm. it would be an ice cube and this might not slip down quite so easily unless it, it's a big one. Uh, the answer is that you should drink what you enjoy drinking. There's not really going to be any huge difference between drinking some lukewarm water or warm water. Uh, there is there, there is some physics basis for arguing that if I drink a lot of cold water that I'll lose more weight than if I drink the same volume of water that's warm because if I drink cold water then the cold water has to warm up to body temperature when I put it into my body it will therefore rob my body of some energy and I must get that energy from somewhere and that's going to come from my metabolism so some of the calories I burn to keep warm I can divert into that kind of thing I don't think this would be a very sustainable or very effective method of weight loss and I would instead advocate taking a little bit of exercise and eating a bit less. Um, and in fact, uh, going swimming is probably a good way of doing that because you could swim in slightly cooler water and, and then you're getting exercise and you're losing some heat which you have to, to burn more calories in order to replace the heat and this will increase your rate of, of weight loss. But don't then respond to the, the rebound hunger that comes after a good swim yeah. and try and issue the crisp packet machine uh, in the foyer of the leisure centre when you leave the swimming pool because there's always a vending machine there, always full of high-calorie <laughs> snacks, which are very, very tempting when you're hungry because you've been exercising. And you can sort of justify it in your mind because you think, well, I have done a lot of exercise <laughs> and I do feel very, very virtuous, so I, I will just have that chocolate bar just this once. Oh, go on then. And then accidentally... You undo all the good work you've just done. Thomas is laughing, Chris. Do you wonder why? Well, no, that's because Thomas can't walk past any kind of food source without eating it. <laughs> all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been out to dinner with Thomas. I've seen, I know this. Oh, true. Judy in Midrand, hi. Hi, Chris. I thought around Chernobyl that um, nothing could live there because of the radiation fallout. But I see from re recent aerial photographs that the forest has basically taken over the, the, the city and there are people and animals flourishing there. Um, and, and I just wondered what sort of, what, has anything mutated or have they adapted? Hi, Judy. Um, a friend of mine went there fairly recently. She's a journalist and so she went along to shoot some film 
of the area because there are some people who just refused to leave Chernobyl. And these individuals are being exposed to higher than they are advised to be exposed to levels of radioactive material because when you have a nuclear disaster like that, the first thing that happens is you get lots of particles of, of radioactive material in the air. It then rains down and lands on the ground and gets into the soil. And if it's in the soil, it means that it can be blown up as dust and you can breathe it in. It can also be taken up by plants and then it concentrates in the fruits and the leaves of those plants. And if you then come along and eat those fruits and leaves, then you will then accumulate in your body more radioactivity. And this is why people have been advised not to go there. But the thing is that you don't have a uniform massive dose everywhere, which means mm -hmm. there'll be some areas which are more... Uh, radioactive than other areas so there will automatically be some areas where plants are able to grow better than others there, there is evidence that some plants have have developed a few funny features i mean people were showing pictures of plants with leaves that were much bigger than they should have been and that kind of thing and there has been a, an enhanced rate of cancers and things like that in some of the people who are in these areas um so it's not a complete um, disaster, but at the same time, it's not good because it, there, there is going to be a big health impact if you were to, to live there. So I wouldn't advise it, but there are people who, who have decided to stay. Mm -hmm. And what about, uh, okay, th I think that has been answered. Uh, there was a follow-up SMS, you've just answered that. Uh, Chris, thank you very much. We'll chat next week. Thanks, Reedy. I'm looking forward to it already. Take Have care. a lovely weekend ahead. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.